Our scripture reading today is from Galatians 1, and Sandra will bring us our reading. If you want to follow along, you can do so on page 972 of the Pew Bibles. Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. This is God's word. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. There was a sharp wind blowing. The rain started to belt down. The damp made the fumes from the cars hang in the air that little bit longer. At the same time, two men were walking down opposite sides of the road. One of the, man, one of the men trying to keep his umbrella straight, was muttering under his breath, wind, cold, wet, rain, pollution. Around the same time, the man on the other side of the road stops walking. He looks up to the heavens, feels the wind and the rain on his face. He looks as the wind moves the leaves on the trees. He listens to the noise of the traffic. And he smiles. Why the different reaction? The first man, the guy who was complaining, 
He was walking home like he does every single day. The second guy was walking home too, but with a big difference. The second guy had just been released from prison. It had been years since he was free, since he was able to feel the wind and the rain on his face and to hear the traffic so closely. If you're used to a prison cell, even the cold and wet rain, even that becomes a great reminder of our freedom. On that street, on that cold and wet, windy day, who do you think truly appreciated their freedom? Probably the guy who knew what it was to be imprisoned. If you grew up in a church, or if you've been a Christian for years, we often find ourselves like that first man. We take the freedom that we have for granted. But in his grace, sometimes God sends something to shake our cage just a little. Instead of complaining about the rain, at that point, we look up and feel the refreshment of the gospel blowing on our faces. In our reading today, we find a picture of what it means to be free in Christ. So if you're able, please open your Bibles to Galatians 1, starting at verse 18, on page 972. So far, Paul has been set free from the traditions of his fathers. He's been set free from depending on what he has done, so he can trust on what Christ has done. Three years after salvation, we find that in verse 18, Paul goes up to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James before going into two of the other mostly Gentile regions, Syria and Cilicia. Obviously, Peter and James had agreed with Paul with what Paul was preaching. Because in verse 22 we read that even though no one in the Judean churches had met him, they were hearing it said that he who used to persecute the church is now preaching the faith the faith that he tried to destroy. And because of that, because he was preaching grace instead of works, the church glorified God because of Paul. Note they didn't glorify Paul. Instead, they gave God all the glory and all the praise. But then we find 14 years pass, and Paul goes up again to Jerusalem, not just off his own bat, but because of a revelation. And why? To meet with those who seemed influential. That is the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And from verse 6, we actually know that Paul wasn't really bothered if they were influential or not. But he was checking with them to make sure that they were all on the same page, preaching the same gospel. And it's at that point the contention starts. News has spread that circumcision is making a comeback. So Paul checks out with the elders at the Church of Jerusalem, a Jewish church, to ensure that he was indeed preaching the same gospel to the Gentiles as that church were preaching to the Jews. Justification by faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. 
and it looks very, very much like he was. Fourteen years earlier, he had no disagreement with Peter or James. And here in verse 3, even Titus, a Gentile convert, is accepted without being circumcised. But then in chapter 2, in verse 4, we find that the devil is at work. We find there is such a thing as false brothers. People who aren't believers at all, but people who are still on a mission. People who Paul says, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may again bring us into slavery. And again, these brothers are within the church. People who have slipped in. For what reason? To enslave the free. Folks, think about what that kind of slavery might look like within our own period in time. In our own day, it is so easy to confuse law and gospel, to add things to what scriptures say. We'll get to it in a few weeks, but if you've ever heard the fruit of the Spirit presented as a to-do list, you must, you must be more loving, more holy, more peaceful. If you're seeing that as a to-do list, you're really turning the gospel into more law. It's turning something that God is doing in us into something that we are trying to do ourselves. One of the banes of the evangelical movement, I think, is the what would Jesus do movement. What car would Jesus drive? Would Jesus listen to that playlist? Scripture doesn't say. Scripture calls us to be wise. It calls us to be discerning. But where scripture hasn't spoken, the church has no right to speak. It might be good advice to drive an electric car instead of the Maserati, Willie. It might be good news to listen only to the Gaithers. But the Bible says nothing about electric cars or country gospel music. It's not what would Jesus do, but instead the gospel is what has Jesus done. That is the law-gospel distinction. One of the worst confusions of law and gospel that I've ever heard is from a U.S. ministry whose tagline is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Because that's actually law. It's not gospel. The emphasis becomes less on what God has done for us and more about how we feel. When are we most satisfied in God? If we're not satisfied in God, what does that mean? The basis of our assurance becomes what? On what we do, on what we feel? How do we cultivate that satisfaction? Is God really, really most glorified in us because of how we feel? Or is God most glorified in us because we trust what Christ has done for us? Folks, if your faith is in Christ alone, as chapter 1 has said numerous times, then that means that you are justified, you are saved. You are justified by faith alone because of that imputed righteousness. 
Absolutely, you will struggle with the flesh. Like Paul, you'll end up calling yourself a wretched man or a wretched woman. But the good news is not what we have done. It's what Christ has done for us. And I hope if you are a believer that that is like standing out in the rain, looking up and feeling the gospel falling on your face with refreshment. Because for Paul in verse 5, this distinction is a critical issue. It's the truth of the gospel that has been preserved for us. These guys coming in, Paul wouldn't bend the knee to them for one minute. To them, we do not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul speaking as someone who knew exactly what it was like to come out of prison, the prison of the law, into the freedom of the gospel. And because Paul loved the church at Galatia, he wasn't about to send them into slavery, into the prison, to keep these false brothers happy. And the leaders of the Jerusalem church got that. They understood it. Because we know that they had the gospel too. Even though Paul wasn't impressed with their so-called influence, another warning against so-called celebrity pastors, in verses 7 and 8, we read that they saw what Peter was to the Jews, Paul was to the Gentiles. Same message given to these men. Same God, same gospel. Yes, different mission fields, but the same gospel, the same God. Not man's gospel, but God's gospel. Faith alone in Christ alone. Unless anyone should pit James against Paul, we read in verse 9 that James and Peter and John perceived the grace that was given to Paul and Barnabas, and they were given the right hand of fellowship. Even in terms of practical service, they seemed to all be on the same page. They asked them to remember the poor, the very thing they were eager to do. So they're all on the same page. Same God, same gospel. One God, one gospel. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Faith alone in Christ alone. But then, then something happens. Remember the false brothers that Paul stood against? Well, Peter doesn't seem to have quite the same spine that Paul has. In verse 11 we read, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Harsh words. Very harsh words. But why? Well, we know that Antioch was the capital of Syria and home to a large population of Jewish believers. The church at Antioch had a very mixed congregation, Jews and Gentiles. In other words, it would have been one of the easiest, most important targets for these false brothers to creep in. So what do these false brothers look like? Well, in verse 12, we read that there are certain men from James. That doesn't mean that these men were actually sent from James. It seems more likely that they're claiming authority as coming from the church in Jerusalem, where James was the elder. We know in verse 9 already that James agreed with Paul on the gospel 
and even shook hands on it. So please don't think ever that James is trying to undermine the gospel or undermine Paul by sending false brothers in to pervert the gospel. But knowing, knowing that James's name carried a lot of weight, what do we find? How do we find Peter responding? Well, we know before these guys came, Peter was sitting down eating with the Gentiles. And so he should be. He was told in Mark 7 by Jesus that all foods are clean. In Acts 10, we find out he had a vision declaring the same thing. There's no unclean foods. That's not going to separate you from the Gentiles. So that's what Peter knows. And he's been living it out. He's been eating with the Gentiles until the false brothers come in. When these guys show up, what does Peter do? He draws back and separates himself because he was afraid of the circumcision party. It's almost like that event that fueled what Paul wrote in 110. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So here, who is Peter trying to please? It's the false brothers. The false brothers. And the fear spreads. In verse 13, we read that the rest of the Jews began doing the same. Even Barnabas was led astray. It seems like absolutely nobody was immune from this message. Imagine the church at Antioch splitting up based on who their parents were. If your parents were Jews, you had to eat here. If you were Gentiles, well, the Jews wouldn't sit and eat with you. Can you imagine what it would look like if all the folks who had a UK passport could only sit here and everybody else had to sit in the welcome center? All the meanwhile, professing the same gospel, faith alone in Christ alone. So what does Paul do? Does he sit down and nod? Does he bite his tongue? No, he doesn't, because this is a gospel matter. Verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Good question. Peter's conduct was contradicting what he said he believed. And please note that Paul doesn't sit back and say, well, this guy is supposed to be the first bishop of Rome. I'll keep my mouth shut. Instead, he protests. I don't know what Peter's initial response was. We do know by the time that the Council of Jerusalem swings round in Acts 15 that he's back on track. But can you imagine the shame, the red face of Peter? Not again, Peter. Remember the rooster? Remember when you were afraid of that little servant girl warming herself by the fire and you denied Christ? Because folks, if we are free in Christ, we have no right to put anyone else in the prison of works. 
If we're free, live like we're free. Enjoy your freedom. That is what Paul is saying here. If your conduct isn't lining up with what you know, well, Paul says that you haven't really grasped the concept of freedom. So how does Paul want us to align our conduct with what we say we believe? Well, in verses 15 and 16, and please note that Paul doesn't go into a whole exposition about, well, if you believe the gospel, you have to be better people, do more, try harder, push yourself to the limit. No, instead of offering good advice, he reminds us of the good news. Instead, he points us away from ourselves and to Christ. Verse 15, both, both Paul and Peter are Jews. There's nothing between them. There's nothing humanly separates them. So how is a person justified if it's not by being Jew? Well, in verse 16, we find that no one is justified by works of the law, because no one is good. No, not one. No one is made right with God because we keep the law, because that is absolutely impossible. But the problem isn't with the law. The problem instead is with us. Romans 7 says that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not with what God has said. The problem is with us. Because no one is good, no, not one. Paul certainly wasn't good. Paul knew that from his own experience. Peter wasn't good. Definitely he knew that from his, his own experience. If you go through the Gospels, Peter never comes away as the hero of the story. But what hope do both Peter and Paul have? Well, it's faith in Christ. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Because no one is good, no, not one. Paul and Peter are like those two men walking down that street. They're both already free. It's just that one of them is too caught up in other things to look up and know the freedom that he has in Christ, to match his conduct with what he already knows is true. Peter knew he was a sinner, absolutely. Paul knew he was a sinner. He says in 1 Timothy that he is the chief of sinners. Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom... I am foremost. That is the good news that Peter and Paul preached. And that is the same good news that Peter preached. Both of these guys were set free. Paul from the bondage of trying to earn a righteousness by works, a righteousness that comes through the law instead of resting and receiving Christ. Peter from the fear of man, 
eventually. From listening to that damning voice that brought up all of his past sins, Peter, who would write in his first letter, you who were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That is the same gospel that Paul and Peter both preached, not justified through works, but by the blood of the Lamb. But what about the false brothers? Well, in the second letter, Peter seems to warn us that these guys have actually slipped in and have started teaching. He says, False teachers among you, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Folks, when we talk about man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, that enjoyment is not a subjective satisfaction that produces happy-go-lucky endorphins in your brain. If you want that, go for a run or eat some sugar. I enjoy being free. I don't wake up every morning and go, Woo! I'm not in prison. But I do enjoy being free. I enjoy the freedom that I have stepping out into the sunshine or the rain, sometimes within seconds. I enjoy the freedom that I have worshipping with people from any tribe, any tongue, any language. I enjoy being able to pray to God directly. I enjoy knowing that all of my sins are forgiven in Christ's death on the cross that I don't have a big question mark hanging over my head about my performance. And I especially enjoy knowing that the souls of believers are, at their death, made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass to be with the Lord. Folks, I have zero desire to break my back with laws and commandments that are not in Scripture. I have zero desire to give you good advice I have zero desire to break your backs. Because the message that Paul and Peter both preached is good news, not good advice. The good news that Christ has already paid for all of our sins on the cross and that we are saved through faith alone in Christ alone, not of works that any of us should boast. Because it's Christ alone who has set us free. Because, Eden Grove, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you that our sins are forgiven. We thank you that we have the certainty that when we leave this earth, we will not be met with a judge angry at us, or sent anywhere for purification, but that we will be greeted with the open arms of our Savior, who looks at Christ's work imputed to us and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. We thank you that you are working in us, that even our sanctification is an act of your free grace. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. 
We thank you for the gospel preached through Paul and Peter, that we are made spotless by the blood of the Lamb, and that it's only by grace that we can enter. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen.